Mario, I was a running nerd in high school. I mean, I'm talking posters on my wall of Steve Cram and 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 Steve Ovet, and I, I desperately wanted to be good at running. And that that desperation meant that, like, you know what, I didn't have the the best running form, and I didn't have, I, I was missing some things, but I, I could will myself to win races, and I could will myself to to, to black out, basically because. I was like, this is my opportunity to get to the United States and to get to the college system. And then you get to the college system and then you're like, okay, wow, now I realize I'm not that good because there's so many guys that are good. So I'm going to have to get ready to hurt myself to get really, really good at running in the college system. And then you get to that level. And then for me, after that was just constantly breaking. So I could never really go as deep as I wanted because I would break. But I don't know where the desire to win comes from other than the desire to just feel like I've done my best and to know that when it's all said and done that, you know, I can't really have any regrets. The the ability to, to, to go hard and to, to, to hurt yourself. Yeah, I think some athletes have it better than others. And I, I would put myself, maybe I could at times go go fairly deep. And uh, I don't know really where, where that comes from. You know, I, I think it's... Uh, I think it's one of those things where it was more it was more of a desire just to know I've I've done my best. And if my best wasn't good enough, which in many times it wasn't, that's okay. Because then I could walk away and be like, well, that's as good as I am. And I think knowing that can give any athlete a, a little sense of peace or a sense of calm. What's up, everyone? I'm Mario Fraioli. This is the Morning Shakeout Podcast, and my guest this week is Keith Kelly. I'll say it right off the top. This is the longest conversation that I've ever had for the podcast, but it's an incredible one. I promise. And I hope you listen to it all the way through to the very end. Keith and I go back 20 years to when we were both competing on the New England collegiate racing scene. He was an NCAA Division I national cross-country champion at Providence College, and I, well, I participated in some of the same events that he did from much further back in the field. We struck up a friendship a few years later when we both started working in the running industry, and our paths have been crisscrossing ever since. Keith is an incredible athlete. In addition to his individual NCAA title, he was a five-time All-American at Providence. He finished 24th in the senior men's race at the 2001 World Cross Country Championships, and he won the Irish National Cross Country title in 2009. When his competitive running career got cut short due to injury, he got into cycling and he rose through the ranks to race as a Cat 1 within a year of taking up the bike. Now 43 years old, Keith works as a global run marketing manager at New Balance. And in the interest of transparency, yes, New Balance is a regular sponsor of the Morning Shakeout, but this conversation is completely my own doing. No one at New Balance asked me to host Keith. I'm not being compensated by New Balance for this episode, nor is Keith my marketing contact at the brand. Just wanted to get that out there at the top of the show. In this episode, Keith talked to me about his athletic career, his extensive injury history, and when he knew that running was something his body could no longer tolerate. 
We discussed his interest in cycling, how he channeled his fitness and competitiveness into his new sport, and what he misses most about being a runner. We also talked about how the pandemic has affected the running industry, how super shoes are changing the sport, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by Gooder. What can I say about Gooder sunglasses other than that they are just the best? I've been wearing them for the past few years, and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. And did I mention they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. There's also a nice range of styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to Gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. 13% off your order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and get 13% off your first pair of shades. Look good, run gooder. Also, a big thank you to Girls on the Run for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is an awesome nonprofit, and I am stoked to be partnering with them for these next few episodes. Over the past 25 years, Girls on the Run has been inspiring girls to know and activate their limitless potential and boldly pursue their dreams. On Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, just a few weeks from now, you are invited to join an exciting 25th birthday virtual event celebrating the inherent power and courage of girls. Keynote speaker Hoda Kotb will be opening an evening full of remarkable stories and meaningful celebration that is not to be missed. The best part? You're invited. Join me and RSVP today at gotr.gives slash TMS. That's gotr.gives slash TMS. This live stream event will include a keynote address from Hoda, a discussion panel with experts and athletes about building confidence in girls through physical activity, and a lot more. The event is free to attend, but donations can be made and special add-on packages are available for purchase, such as a copy of Hoda's newest book and a pair of Gooder sunglasses customized for girls on the run. Check out gotr.gives slash TMS for more details and to register today. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with one of my favorite people in all of running, Keith Kelly. All right, Keith Kelly, I've always enjoyed our past conversations. It is a thrill to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. It's a thrill to be here, Mario. Like I was saying, I've been a long-time listener and always great uh, guests, you know, and then I'm kind of, kind of bringing down the standard here, so I have to, <laughs> I have to share some insights <laughs> no, your you're raising you're raising the standard. As I told you, when I started this show a little over three years ago, I had an initial list of 10 guests that I knew I wanted to have on the podcast at some point, and you were one of those 10 guests. So it is, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, that's great, Mario. I'm delighted to be here. It's funny that we're talking right now. I was just thinking a little while ago as I was having lunch, when did I 
first meet Keith Kelly. And I don't know when we actually met. It may have been after college at some point when you were working for Reebok in Run Specialty and I was managing PR running in Westboro, Massachusetts, and you were visiting our account. But I remember very vividly my first memory of you as an athlete, which you had no idea who I was, or I wouldn't have expected to have any idea who I was. But it was almost 20 years ago to the month, and it was the New England Indoor Track and Field Championships at the old Boston University in the Armory. And I was in the 3,000 meter final as a freshman at Stonehill College. You were a senior at Providence. And I remember I was the last seed in the championship heat of the 3,000 meters. And <laughs> my only goal for that race was to not get lapped by you and Hamish Thorpe. And yeah. Two laps to go, all of a sudden I hear ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and you guys are coming around <laughs> for your final circuit. And I think you guys ran something like 756 or 757 that day. I ran my second fastest time at the time, which was somewhere in the high, you know, 830s. But I remember being like, damn it, I didn't accomplish my goal of not getting lapped by Keith and Hamish in this well, race. That was one of the great things about New England's because you know, we up to that point it was always it was either a big invitational like Terrier or Valentine. And then you had the Big East Championships mm -hmm. or whatever conference you were in. But then New England's was truly like the grassroots of New England where the, everyone was in it together. And uh, I remember, I think that was the same meet that, what's his name from Keene State won the mile? And what was his name again? Mark Miller. Mark Miller. Yeah. And he was like... It was like he won the NCAAs. He was so psyched. And I remember talking to him afterwards because he beat a bunch of like Providence guys and, and, and BC guys and Dartmouth guys. So, yeah, I loved it. But I do remember you, I think. Yeah, I, because we had talked about it subsequent and I, and I d did remember it back then. And I think we would right. have probably seen each other at, at Franklin Park because I used to go to every single race there even when I wasn't racing. Well, so while we're going down memory lane, it's funny you bring up Franklin Park because my next memory of you was my senior year at Stonehill College. So this was fall of 2003. And we were running our regional championship at Franklin Park in the morning. And Nate Jenkins and I had a battle that we recounted on our podcast uh, many months That's ago right. when I recorded with him. And that was the first time we, Stonehill College men's cross country, made the national championship. But after our race was the all New England championship, the open New England championship. And you were running professionally at that point, I believe for Reebok, uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was New, New Balance. New I can't Balance. remember. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember who you were representing at the time, but I remember watching you run that race. It was a cold day and you dominated from the get go. And I think you ran like 29 low, 29.30 or something for 10K. No one else was even close. And we had a subsequent conversation about this years later because I believe it was that race where you broke yourself. Yes. Uh, you weren't the same afterward for quite a while. Forever. Yeah, that was the, you know, that's a that's a pivotal race. So it's a, it would be important part of my journey and, and we can get to it. But I, I, I ended up running low 29, 29.05, I think, or 29.04 mm -hmm. and, and winning the race by maybe a minute maybe 75 seconds because Adam Sutton was second. Uh, that was one of the days where sometimes, you know, people talk about runners high and I, I, I've had like four or five cross country races where there was, a, it was easier than a morning, than a morning shakeout. And that was one of them where I wish I had have known I was running that fast because I would have 
went after Schleipak's course record and I would I would have beaten it but I was thinking of the European cross country championships in that race Mario and I, I was just floating along like a training run I remember talking to literally talking to Ray because he would always stand in the same part of the course and I'd be like Ray this is cool I'm just going to cruise in and I finished the race and was convinced that I was going to get a medal at the European cross country champs and then I didn't run again from that day I didn't really run again for another another nine or ten months because I broke my sacrum I got a stress fracture in my L5 S1 that was pretty long and it was just a just a bad stress fracture but what happened was when the stress fracture healed a lot of scar tissue built up and it impinged a bunch of the nerves that come out of your spine and I lost function of my left hamstring for basically six months I was I would go to Tom Michaud at a really really good chiropractor in Boston and we would do measure, measure strength measurements and I had about 30 percent maybe of the strength on my left hamstring as I did in my right hamstring I couldn't even with a light ankle weight I could barely barely uh, bring my heel up to my arse so it was just brutal and it created all sorts of problems that I never recovered from that was the I'd already had injury problems but that was the real beginning of the end was that your first stress fracture? No, no, no. At that point, I was getting stress fractures like you get like you get a head cold. I mean, I had a bad stress fracture in college, a couple of stress fractures in college, and then I got one year where I didn't get any injury, and that was my last year, which subsequently was my best running year. And then the first year out, I got a bad stress fracture in my shin, and... 2002, I came back from that stress fracture and had a very mediocre but okay year, won Mare's Cup cross. And uh, then that winter got injured again uh, with a stress fracture in my pelvis, like the top of the pelvis crest, which mm-hmm. at that point was showing me that I was in big trouble uh, in, in terms of like stability in my in my hips. And then the bad stress fracture, the real bad one came in, in 2003. So in 2002... I actually had two stress fractures, sorry, two stress fractures in my pelvis in 2002. And I was working with Jar Hartman in Limerick. And he kind of, he painted a pretty honest picture for me when everyone else was saying things like, oh, Cal, you've no problem, just, you know, correct this or get in the gym and do this. Jar Hartman, and I, I, I'm sure you know who Jar is. He, he's been, he worked with Paula yes. Radcliffe forever and he's worked with, he worked with the whole, the whole Kim uh, agency in London. So that Daniel Coleman and, and all of those guys. He was the first to really tell me that I'm not really going to have a career in running based on the way I was built. And it was just so honest and sobering at the time. I was like, Jay, what are you on about, man? I'm like 24. I'm fit. I know I've got problems. And he's like, Keith, your hips and your knees and your, the, your leg length discrepancy. I was like two centimeters off. Your curvature of your spine. He's like, you're, you're a mess. You're a big engine. You're a big engine in a terrible chassis, he said. And, uh, it always stuck with me and and he said you're always going to have the problem where you get fitter than your body than your frame can handle so your heart and lungs are going to feel like you can run through a brick wall but everything else is not going to be ready and that's how you get into what's called an injury cycle i don't know if you remember telling me this but at one point you said to me i'm walking around when I haven't been running for many months in 1530 shape. And within two weeks, I'll be in sub 15 minute shape and give me another two weeks and I'll be in 1430 shape. And two weeks after that, I can be in 
sub 14 minute shape. And I think that speaks to exactly what you just said. You could get fit really really fast but your body never had a chance to catch up never and it was it's it's yeah it's brutal and and when i look back on it all i mean the the signs i should have listened to jerry from from day one but i would it's you know how it is you've no pa- runners have no patience especially when you're on the kind of bread line where you're you're making a few quid but you know you know like a couple of road races pays pay pay you at 1200 bucks i mean you're living in providence rhode island and your rent is 300 bucks a month you're like, wow, that's, that's, if I make $1,500 this month, that's pretty good. And I can, so it's like you go into the race and then you promise yourself you're just going to jog around, but you test yourself. And, and yeah, sure, I, I could go out and run. It's not amazing, but for a lay person, I could take a long period off, maybe call it 12 weeks of zero running and then jump in a road race and run 15 minutes for 5K or 14, 40 for 5K and be like, okay, that's a good starting spot. And then, but then a month later, I would have a stress fracture in my shin and I'd have to take another six weeks off. And that cycle continued for, for, yeah, for, for years. I, I really didn't have any pain-free running from the day I graduated until the day I, I completely stopped. For reference, do you know how many stress fractures and surgeries you had in total? And I asked that question because the last time I did a lengthy interview with you was 2012. And at that time, your running career was more or less over at that point. But I think it was 10 stress fractures and five surgeries. Yeah. So it was, it would have been six surgeries, I think, and at least 10 stress fractures. And then I've had another knee surgery since. And then, uh, yeah, another knee surgery since, and then once I started cycling, I had another surgery on a on a broken collarbone as well that I that I snapped. But running knees, I had six knee surgeries, and uh, and then a ruptured appendix. That was a a long surgery in two thousand and five, and then maybe anywhere between ten and fourteen stress fractures, one of which was a, essentially a broken back, and uh, just like. It wasn't a typical stress fracture. It was a, I was in immobile for a very, very long time. And then the, then the nerve impingement and then I couldn't move my hamstring. That felt like a six-month jail sentence. That was brutal. Couldn't even ride a bike, couldn't go in a swimming pool, could, could do nothing. Talk to me a bit more about the contributing factors to your injuries. You went into it a little bit earlier in this conversation, but looking back, do you think there's anything you could have done differently that would have preserved your body or at least helped your ability to tolerate training at a high level? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so when we grew up, I mean, you're talking 1980s Ireland and I joined the running club and we we ran on grass and in muddy fields. There was never an emphasis placed on running form. There was never an emphasis placed on, you know, core strength. We were kids running and, and I ran on my bare feet which kind of goes against what everyone who talks about barefoot running would say. I developed a really, really bad gait and I was running. I, I photographs of myself racing as a 12 year old in my bare feet where I'm landing so squarely on my heel and my toes are flexed right up against my shin. I mean, really, really bad, but no one was there to say, hold on a sec, that th- this is not how you run. You have to change things. So I got into such a bad habit that even by college, I could muscle through cross country races, but I could never run well on the track. The track always felt like I was running uphill, but cross country, 
And the reason why I love cross country so much is because it was in this equalizer where if you had really good bouncy four foot running form, you weren't necessarily going to be able to to handle an undulating, soft going cross country course. Whereas if you mm-hmm. could muscle through, you could actually do a lot better than guys that would destroy you on the track. So I think the fact that I was so good at cross country almost papered over the fact that I had really bad track form and it's something we just never addressed. I was like, no, the track stuff will come. You're, you're going to have a breakthrough race. You're eventually, you're going, you're going to run that 13, 25K and it's going to be all good. It just never happened. The track always hurt me. It always gave me stress fractures. And the only time I could enjoy running was when I was running cross country. So I'm sure if in 2000 and, sorry, in, in 1996, when I arrived at Providence, if I had spent my first year just in the gym or even my, last year in high school spent half the time running and the other half the time working on form and working on strength i wouldn't have developed such bad habits when i p- bumped up my mileage and uh, it's not not ray tracy's fault it's my fault i mean i i chose not never to go to a gym i chose to never do a sit-up i chose to never do a plank or any core work to me it was all taking away from going out and doing a hard training run so i fall into that you know, no different than a Nate Jenkins that you had on your podcast and, and many other great runners that like just developed bad running form and could, could, you can't correct it. You can't correct years and years and years of wonky running form and then suddenly go to the track and step over a few hurdles and think that you're going to be, you're going to change it. So it would have been, it would have been something I would have had to address early, but the cycle started Mario. And once it starts and you start getting those fractures and you start correcting one thing with an insert or an orthotic and it creates another problem and then your spine's curved and then you're getting hip stress fractures and the injuries just find a place a place to penetrate in your body. And for me, man, like I was so depressed. I just, I could feel them coming on before they came on instantly. I knew I was getting a stress fracture. I could just feel it and there was no going back. There was no stopping and taking a day off. It was, it was just constant pain until I decided no more. I asked you this during our interview in 2012, but I'm going to ask you the same question again. Now, if you could give advice to young runners today, what would it be? Yeah, I get asked that question all the time. Like I, I've got my experience of working in the running business and seeing amazing athletes like Jenny Simpson and and Emma Coburn and, and Brenda Martinez and all of these, these guys to know what it takes. But from my own experience, and I talk to young runners, I'm like the working on the little things, saving the pennies to, to, to get the dollars is what you have to do. A day off is, is so valuable when you're younger, doing two less miles on your training run, but spending 20 more minutes working on a weakness is so much more valuable. I, I tell guys like you, you, you need a lot of things to be a good runner. You need really positive attitude. You need to believe in what you're doing. You need to listen to a coach exclusively and not constantly change your direction based on something you read on the internet. So you have to buy into your program. You have to be positive and you have to learn to work on weaknesses and, and, and have the confidence to take rest days or to do a little bit less. And if I could go back, I would have done a lot less mileage I would have taken more days off and I would have spent hours more following a very structured gym program and form program that would have got me a little bit straighter 
and uh, taking the pressure off all those uh, impact points. At what point did you know or come to accept that your competitive running career was over? Pretty much in 2003. And then I was in denial for about, you know, three or four years after that. So in 2003, when I I moved, I had such a bad injury in 2002. I missed the whole winter with those stress fractures. And I assumed that the 2003 track season was going to be, was going to be uh, maybe a few road races. And in, it was like in about April, I started running and I said to Ray Tracy, I was like, Ray, this is going to be unorthodox, but maybe I should just try and do less mileage and see if I can jump in some shorter distance races and see if that helps. So Ray was like, that's a pretty good idea. Let's do some 1500s. And I'd never really raced 1500. So we did a lot of workouts that were only about, you know, two miles of intervals, a lot of mm. eight by 400 or, you know, six by 600 and just short workouts that were all focused on form and good running and not getting fatigued and not breaking down. And then I jumped into a 1500 up in Boston at the, the, the old Can-Am series or the, the New Balance Twilight series. And it was a good field. Dan Wilson and a bunch of the guys came up from Philadelphia because it was the week before, the, it was a few days before the main distance festival, which was a great meet that's no longer and I ran 3.43 or 3.42. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, at the time, like 3.40 was kind of like the benchmark. Now it's, mm-hmm. now it's 3.34, I think, <laughs> is the benchmark. But uh, I was like, wow, 3.42 off a couple of just, I'm, I'd only been running a couple of months and I'd done about eight, eight quality workouts. So I was like, if I can put together another eight quality workouts, maybe I can run 3.38. And uh, so went to the main, main distance festival, ran, ran the mile four minutes or something like that and then went to the UK and did a 1500 over at the British Milers Club and ran 340 340 low I, I thought I saw 339 on the clock and I was like wow I think I'm going to actually qualify for the world champs I know I can go two seconds quicker because it was a, another three weeks of doing some short workouts I'm like I'm just getting faster and faster and then got injured again and had to take uh, about eight weeks off. So that was the end of the track season. And then that's when I came back that fall and applied the same logic, which was let's do less and let's focus on quality and let's see what we can do. And that cross-country season, I went to Mayor's Cup and Alan Webb was having his professional debut that day. And it was a big deal. Uh, I'd never mm-hmm. seen so many people at the Mayor's Cup. And... Uh, like I was even a bit in awe, you know, Alan Webb had 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 a bad year at Michigan by his standards, but he was still a 353 high school miler. And I remember seeing him on the start line and shaking his hand and he had no idea who, who I was. And at that time I would have been a fairly popular figure on the racing scene in New England. And certainly <laughs> when it comes to cross country, everyone in the running scene in New England knew, knew who I was and uh, Webb had no idea. And it was all good. He was given autographs right before the race. I mean, it, it was massive crowd. All these high school kids had come from different high schools all around the area to see Alan Webb in his professional debut. And he had all the gear on. He, he looked the part and boom, the gun went and I just took off. He went with me. It was super windy in Franklin, Franklin Park and I just kept grinding. And I could feel him right, right there. It was the two of us and maybe Carl Savage or someone else was there. And then 
within a mile, I just felt no one was behind me. And I ended up winning the race by 35 or 40 seconds over, over Webb. And uh, he came up to me after the race and he was like, man, I did not expect that. And I was like, that's because you're not from the New England cross country scene, man. And we became good, became good friends after that. And obviously I was followed his career and he was amazing, but I was in such good shape. I was like, this formula is going to work. I mean, the summer might have been a fluke because I jumped into a lot of 1500s, but this lower mileage, focusing on good running form, focusing on workouts that don't leave me beat up and or I don't have to grind through. And then I went to New England two weeks later and had the, one of the easiest races I've ever had to, to run low 29s in Franklin Park. Franklin Park is, is, is a short 10K. It's like maybe 100 meters short, but I would have easily broken 28, 30 if I was in a proper proper race that day. Um, so I was just in great form and then I got out, got out of the car back in Providence and couldn't, couldn't walk and that was it. And then after that and that whole year, I just felt like missing 2004, which was an Olympic Games that I thought I would go to. I was like, this is, I can't, I can't live like this. I, I can't live on $15,000 a year, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, t- it's time to, to look at other options. And I went back to graduate school and kept trying to run, but I started to focus on trying to build a career in the industry. And that was my shift. How were you thinking about your career in the industry at that point? Did you have a clear idea of what you wanted to do or was the goal to get your MBA from, was it from Providence? Providence, yep, yep. And, and figure it out from there? Or did, or did you, at that point, like you knew you wanted to work in running and you knew this was just an important step to get you where you wanted to go? Exactly, and I wanted to work in sports marketing. And I was really like, you know, I see these athletes and like, I think they, I think they can do so much more for the brands they represent. I used to, I, I mean, Providence at the time had, had so many really good runners. You know, Mark Carroll was just knocking around the streets. And I was like, you know, Nike sponsors Mark Carroll. Mark Carroll is a 13 minute 5K runner and a 7, 30 minute 3K runner. And he's doing workouts on the east side of Providence ra- around the Coogan Loop. Or he, he'll join our group runs on Saturday morning. And I'm like, no one's activating, no one's celebrating how good he is or how good Amy Rudolph is, who was running for Adidas at the time. Like these brands need, need to do more with their athletes. And I was like, I'm going to get in the industry and I'm going to get into sports marketing. And I mean, I took the first job I could get, which ultimately changed the course of my life because my boss then is my boss now, Kevin Adams. And uh, between Kevin and Lee Cox, you know, two, two, really uh, big mentors of mine in, in the industry. We started, we started in, in sales for, for the running team in, in Reebok, which was pretty tight. I didn't want to be a sales guy, but I liked it. I liked going to PR running and, and talking to you and Rich about r- running. I knew our product wasn't, I knew our shoes weren't very good. I knew we had a huge uphill challenge, but for a short period of time, I felt like Reebok were really investing in the sport and I was proud of what they were doing, sponsoring athletes like Jorge Torres and Kim Smith and all of those guys. Like we, the, the people working there cared, the product wasn't good. And ultimately, it, you know, I had a shelf life, but it gave me the opportunity to move on to New Balance. And I found a home now that's, uh, that I'm very proud of because of the commitment to, to the sport of running. 
But that's a long answer to say that when I went back, went to business school, yes, my goal was not to work for Goldman Sachs. It was to work for a shoe brand and or to work with an agency or a, an, a federation or a, a BAA, just to work in the sport because I was so obsessed. Knowing you as long as I have, I love getting that perspective because I remember very vividly when I was managing PR running and you were working for Reebok, which is based in Massachusetts, headquarters were in Canton, you invited me to headquarters one day to talk about the product and how it was doing in the shop. And I remember telling you, it's not doing that well. We're putting it out against you know these shoes and it's losing out every time. And I remember you like slammed your coffee on the table and you were like, shite. And you were genuinely like upset that the product wasn't quite there because you were invested in it. Your entire team was invested in it, but the product like couldn't stand that like really made a big impression on me just as far as like how much you care about the wagon you tie yourself to. And at the time it was, it was Reebok and it was struggling and run specialty, but you wanted so bad for it to be a major player in that space. Yeah, we, we really did. And that came from Kevin and then from Lee, you know, and, and those guys are still in the industry. Lee, obviously at Hoka and Kev's my boss at New Balance. But, you know, we were like so frustrated because we felt like we had all these building blocks in place. We had the right people, you know, your good friend, Sean McKeown and Ted Fitzpatrick, who's, an old, who's at Saucony now but an old school New England runner. We had all these people in place that were truly passionate about the sport of running. And in some ways, it was a, a great awakening for me because I was a little bit sheltered in the elite side of the sport where I woke up every day and, mm -hmm. and thought everybody was fast because I was only surrounded by fast people. And, you know, you realize that the running specialty business is not floated by you know, sub 14 minute 5k runners or sub 16 minute female 5k runners, it's floated by 18 minute male 5k runners and 22 minute female 5k runners. And you quickly realize that there is a disconnect between what happens at the, the sharp end of the sport and what happens when someone wants just a nice pair of running shoes to go for a run. So the product is king in this industry. And we just didn't have product. We had all the energy and the passion for running and we sponsored all these races and we would go into PR running or marathon sports and be like, we sponsor X race and Y race and we invest millions of dollars in athletes and we sponsor a big track meet in New York City and a big track meet in Boston and we sponsor high school running. You guys should care. And you're like, well, we do care. But when we pull your, you know, premier stability shoe against a Brooks Adrenaline or a GT2000, no one's picking the Reebok shoe. And that, that's the last three feet of the sale and that's all we can do. So I used to get so fired up for sure, Mario, and really passionate. But then I realized that until you've got great product, the, the rest of the stuff doesn't really matter, which was awesome to go to New Balance then and see their team build incredible product and have all those building blocks behind it. So yeah, made sense. Made sense to me after I left Reebok. Was it or has it ever been hard for you to work in this industry and be so close to it when your own career as an athlete just didn't pan out how you wanted it to? Was there ever any point where you just wanted to get away from running and go in a different direction altogether? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it ha- it started, It's. <sighs> I got a little bit bitter for sure. And I got a chip on my shoulder. I felt that it was very unfair that someone like me, who I, f- I felt was very positive, was very giving, was always willing to do something for someone else, was always willing to give someone a massage if they needed a rub down or give someone advice. Or I felt other people weren't as giving as I was, nor did they really love the sport like I loved it. And they seemed to just be able to run through brick walls and never hurt themselves. And yet I would just go for one one run one day and my knee would explode and I would need a knee surgery. Like it was so, it was so polar opposite to everyone else that I definitely got bitter. And by the end, by 2009, which was my last race, my my little comeback that late, later after a few years off, by that point, I, I had gotten a little bit bitter. And I think it made me better at my job because then I started to care much more about the ordinary new runner. I loved listening to Couch to 5K stories and felt like, well, you know, th- this is the world that keeps the rest of us afloat. Like these people who are purchasing head to toe running outfits and they, 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 they invest in the, in the industry with their, with their dollar. I became obsessed with that side of it. And then I became obsessed with cycling and becoming obsessed with cycling was a great way to get, get rid of the, the, the hangups I had for running. But, you know, at times I did get bitter where I didn't even want to go and watch races, which was not like me. Like up until I was 30 years old, I would drive, I would drive from Providence up to Boston to watch a cross country meet at Franklin Park. If I if just, just to go up and watch it. Cause I hear there's, there's a, a, a college race on up there. So I'm going to go up and watch it. Or I'd go to Terrier Classic and watch the entire weekend, sit in the stands and watch for the entire weekend, drinking coffee. And I stopped doing that which means I, I started to get a little bit resentful of the sport. But I'm back in now. Like that period is, is over and now I'm very comfortable with my relationship with the sport. I remember that period in time because that's when our professional relationship started. And it was in 2009. You won your comeback. You won the Irish National Cross Country Championship. I mean, yeah. you were still competing at a very high level I can't remember the exact timing, but you got injured again. You couldn't run. And I had just suffered my second sacral stress fracture. So we had had a lot of commonality in that regard. And I couldn't run. So I was going to the gym and spinning on the bike. And I remember you coming to the shop one day just to check in on us. And you knew that I was injured and dealing with a lot of the same issues. And I remember you just getting that look in your face and looking at me and saying, Mario, can I maintain fitness on the bike. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you could actually really hammer yourself on the bike if you wanted to. I'm not taking any credit for your entryway into <laughs> cycling, but I remember when that seed was planted for you and to see how quickly it grew just in a matter of a couple of years, because when we had that interview in 2012, you were working for New Balance. I was at competitor. We were at the Carlsbad 5000, which you guys sponsored at the time. I mean, you were racing Cat 1 in cycling and you hadn't even been at it for that long at that point yeah running the running transfers over to cycling really well not so much the other way i mean look at mike mike woods is the is the greatest story and one of the greatest stories Mm -hmm. in sport um with his transition but i remember you telling me about i was like do you do intervals on the bike or you just doing the riding and you're like no you're doing intervals and you're 
you're making sure you have a high cadence and you're doing all this stuff to to, to stay healthy. It wasn't long after that that a few people did convince me to to start bike racing. But yeah, in the in the in the build up to two thousand and nine and and the comeback, I had a two I had a couple of years off and you know, my my then roommate, uh, Dylan Wikes was moving up into the marathon and, and I had jumped in some workouts with him on 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 the east side of Providence, some like long tempo runs and you know, again it was just no it was no problem to run those like ten milers at five minute pace or 12 milers at five minute pace and I said maybe I'll do the marathon and uh, Dylan went on to go off and I think he did Rotterdam and he ran like 214 and I was getting knee surgery because just that little period of jumping in a few long workouts destroyed my knee and then I was like I I have to I just have to stop running and it was a no joke it was the advent of the iPod shuffle where you could clip the iPod shuffle on and listen to music yep and the Garmin Forerunner, like things had just kind of come onto the market in the year I had off or so. And I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go for a jog and listen to music. And I had this Garmin Forerunner and I was looking at my pace and I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm able to run six minute, six minute mile pace, you know? And that kind of got me back into it. So I started blogging. I started talking with the music I was listening to and the training I was doing. I wasn't following a training program. I would just kind of tell Ray, what I was doing and Ray would say, do this workout or, you know, test yourself on this kind of five mile effort. And I did that for the winter and never really got, it's all documented, but I never really got into high mileage. And I said, you know what, I need to give it one more go because I've never won an Irish national cross country championships. And like I deserved an Irish national cross country championships because I felt like the only thing I was ever good at was cross country. And it was a shame that I had all these junior titles, but never had a senior title because I was either always injured or just based in the US, I missed races. So I flew home and did a couple of tune-up races, a, a road race in Armagh that went okay. I think I ran 14, 12 for 5K or something like that on the road. And uh, the winners, the Zap Fitness guys were over and, and they went and Chris Thompson and they went to 13, 55. So I was like within 20 seconds which for me in a two week period could be 10 seconds. Like the, the fitness gains were so quick. And then I went to the national right. cross country champs and yeah, I just said, you know, what, I'm going to run like, I'm going to pretend it's 2003 again and I'm that young and I'm fast and no one can beat me. And I just went in with this kind of wide eyed, uh, aggressive approach, which wasn't like me at all because I never really had much confidence. But on that day, I just gunned it from the start and 12k and and managed to to hold on to the win which meant that i got to go to the world cross country championships in in jordan and i was like this is bizarre you know i'm 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 after winning the nationals and then the team manager is giving me information on on the travel for jordan and what like make sure i have my passport up to date and so on so i'm running a cool down with vinnie mulvey good friend of mine and we're running around the track in Santry, which is next to where the cross-country course was. And I felt the worst pain you can imagine in my knee, like literally like someone was drilling a hole in my knee. And Vinny said, you know, man, it's crazy that you're going to the World Cross-Country Champs. And I was like, Vinny, I'm not going to the World Cross-Country Champs. I'm going to be going to a doctor because I think my knee's destroyed again. And sure enough, I had a chunk of cartilage the size of a, a like a quarter 
that had dislodged from the head of my femur and it was just wedged between my knee joint. And every time I put any pressure on the knee, it felt like I was, you know, like think of, think of standing on a pebble that's in your shoe, except it's a bigger pebble and it's in between your knees. And I had to go in under the knife and get surgery. And Brian McKean in Boston, the doctor said, dude, you cannot run anymore. Like he said, your knees are like a 80 year old guy. He's like, you're, you're, I don't know what you've done, but you need to stop. And that was the last, that was the last time I, I, I ran. And then that's when I was asking you about the bike workouts. <laughs> and it escalated very, very quickly from there. Yeah, it did. I, I, I bought the bike on eBay and, uh, I was just kind of spinning around. I did would do a little bit of riding with Mark Carroll and he was stronger and Mark wasn't a cyclist either, but he was strong on the hills when he was coming back from injury, he would use a bike for fitness and I was stronger on the flats. And then I'd ride with my friend Dan Davenport and then Lee Cox. And I was just getting scut- like the running thing. I went from struggling to do a 30 mile ride to being able to hammer those guys over 40 or 50 miles. I went to, uh, it was actually around just before Carlsbad, I'd been talking to Rich Fernie, a mutual friend of ours, and, and he got me a, a proper felt racing bike. And then I jumped in as a Cat 5 and with no racing experience. And yeah, within a year, it was, it was up to a Cat 1 and racing racing like wannabe pros as, a, as an old runner, just button heads, and I loved it. When your running career came to an end, did you know that you had to find some other competitive outlet to put your energy into? Yeah, I, I could have very easily went the, the way of too much drinking, you know, I, I, I'm very fond of, a, of an IPA. And just during that period, you know, 2010, particularly, my life in, in general wasn't great. I had, um, you know, broken up from a relationship and yeah, but it was ambiguous whether we were broken up or not. And it was just like a strange period for me. I had moved up to Boston. I'd been living with Kim Smith for a long time and, and, and it was fine. It was great. But then I'd moved to Boston and I found, I just found myself getting in a routine of going around to the public house in Brookline and drinking three or four IPAs each night and more on the weekends. And I was like, you know what, man, I, I need to get, get myself together here because I could very easily fall, fall into a trap of, of just getting fat. And I'm a, I'm a skinny guy anyway, but I could just felt myself falling apart. And, uh, it was a very quick turn of events to just say, you know what, I'm always going to have a beer, but I need to earn my beer and I need to do that by going and, and joining group rides and I found a group in Boston and uh yeah I went all in and then just very quickly once the success in cycling came I just got really into the cycling culture and cycle the sport and the travel and go, going to races all over and bringing my bike with me on vacation and and going and riding it over in Europe mm-hmm. and just getting into the whole thing going to watch the Tour de France and now I'm equally as obsessed with cycling as 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 running and in many ways more obsessed with cycling because I'm still learning stuff about the sport, about the mountain bike side of the sport and the the possibilities that the sport offers when you when you can't run. Do you remember your first cycling race? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a, a race called, that's not on anymore, but it was huge at the time. It was called Tour of the Battenkill in upstate New York, right on the, the New York-Vermont border. 
next to uh, what's the name of the college up there? Bennington, Bennington College, where, where wherever Brett Easton Ellis went to school, up there, and uh, it, amazing. It's like a combination of dirt roads and regular roads, and I did that as a Cat Five. So there was three Cat Five fields, all big fields, and uh, you could win your section, and then you'd have to win your overall the fastest time got to be the Cat Five winner, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I ended up winning it and 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 getting the fastest time, but it was a, a solo effort. I kind of went off the start early. It was a sixty mile race, or maybe a sixty five mile race, and I probably fifty miles of it. I was just off by myself, like a training ride, like I had been doing in Providence, and I just, uh, yeah, I just rode away. And I was like, "Wow, well, I, I do need to get up." I, I wasn't delusional. I was like, "This is this is an entry level standard," and and. I'm probably pretty fit right now from years of running. So I probably need to upgrade and, uh, but you have to, you still have to earn your stripes. So I had to jump in some training races after bat and kill to get to cat four. And then the same thing happened in cat four. I won those races pretty easy. And then you get to cat three. And when you get to cat three, you're at that level where there's a bunch of college kids that are into cycling and they're pretty fit and they're young and fearless. So cat three was a, was a, maybe a six week period of races before I got to Cat 2. And then to jump from Cat 2 to Cat 1, you need to win some big things. And I managed to win the Green Mountain stage race as a as a Cat 2. And then I did one race in the f- winter that got me the points to be a Cat 1. And then I think in April, I upgraded to Cat 1. Early on in your cycling career, were you treating those races much like you did running races, just off the front, try to hammer people yeah. into the ground as early as you could? Yeah, I did everything I did was running because I, my workouts were eight by three minutes. Like n- now, as a as someone who's been cycling a long time, I, I would only do those VO two max workouts like in getting ready for race season. Now I'm doing, you know, stuff like three by twenty minutes at you know a tempo effort or you know one hour a tempo effort. But back then, all I did was mimic workout 16 by one minute on one minute off almost like spin class uh training so what happens is you get really really fit but then when you get up to cat one or even when you get up to cat two because you're racing in the one two races those types of workouts don't don't get you to the next level you have to have they don't cut it (laughs) you have to have the the base and the five hour long rides and you have to have the long hill intervals and you have to build that big big endurance base i was just doing everything on the trainer and I would literally do 50, 50 minute workouts where it was like 10 minute warm up, and I'm going to do the equivalent of six by 1200 meters. So that's, I'll do six minutes, six by three and a half minutes and bang out six by three and a half minutes. So that's how I train. And then racing, yeah, I always try to go off the front. There's no, people say there's a little bit of drafting and running, get into a bike race and you know what drafting is. And, uh, I'd be like, why are these guys still on me? And I would just kill myself to try and get away. But in the end, I, I developed a bit of a reputation in New England and all the cyclists were really funny about it, you know, because they were like, dude, if you, have, if you learn how to race a bike, you'll actually be pretty good at it. Um, so it was, it was fun. It endeared me to the, to the, to the scene up there and I've become very tight with all the guys in the New England bike racing scene. I remember you telling me that back in 2012, how you were mimicking your running workouts. And at the time, you weren't using a computer. You didn't have a power meter. You didn't use a heart rate monitor. You were just getting on your trainer and hammering. 
like yeah. these interval workouts, much like you just described. You know, you, now with, with Zwift and all of these programs, you can jump on the trainer and you can do two-hour workout, no problem. Back then, I could only stomach the trainer for like an, an hour felt like an eternity. So I was like, mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is I'll warm up for 15 minutes and I'll, I had my watch and I would just, as soon as it hits 16 minutes, I'm going to go to 20 minutes and flat out. And, you know, it gets you, it gets you really fit, but it doesn't get you fit in the sense that you can compete in a hundred mile road race. It just gets you, you know, sugar high. You're, you're, you're just fit at the, at the, at the high end. And then cat five, it's no problem. But when you get to cat one, it doesn't cut it. Those weaknesses get exposed pretty quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, and I realized I didn't do long rides, which is, you know, when, when in the years later, you know, you realize the, how important it is to go out and do five hours on the bike. And Mario, you were in SoCal, which is like an epicenter for, for, for cycling when you were a competitor group. You'd see those guys there doing 110 mile rides, 120 mile rides up and down a PCH. Relatively easy. And that's the equivalent of your 20 mile long run. Um, you're not going to become a good mm -hmm. marathon runner by doing um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, three miles of intervals on the track with two short eight mile flat out runs. You, you need to, you need to have structure and, and, and cycling is a lot of structure and it's a lot of time, a lot more time in, the, in uh, doing your, doing your workout. Here's a question for you. As someone who has been deeply involved in competitive running and now competitive cycling and, and now both, quite frankly, how do they differ culturally in your experience? That's a good question. I always, you know, I always wonder why running doesn't have the same kind of romanticism as, as cycling. Uh, in Europe, specifically in Europe, cycling has it's kind of more like soccer in the sense that of its, of its tribal and historic nature. People mm -hmm. talk about the, the classics. I, you know, I was fortunate to go to Belgium and see the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. And for example, Paris-Roubaix, you'll see you'll, the pubs are packed in the morning and you can go in and get, you know, some breakfast or have a, have a beer early in the day because it's a truly a festival. And you'll see these old guys and old, and, 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 and old ladies in like wearing old cycling caps and they're talking about the, this is the 70th Roubaix they've seen. And they talk about the riders, like the way we talk about great soccer players or in the U S the way you talk about great baseball players. And it's this whole like cultural in, in Europe that cycling was political and cycling was country against country. And the prestige of having the world champion or the prestige of having the Tour de France or Giro d'Italia champion in your country was, you know, these guys were, were front of the newspaper superstars, Eddie Merckx and, and so on, and Bernardinos and, and Marco Pantani's. So culturally, they're, they're, they hold their athletes, their cycling superstars much higher than we would hold our running stars. And I don't know why, because running is so similar. Running is probably harder in some ways um, in terms of the injuries and, and, and what your, your body goes through. And I think at one point, maybe in the 80s, particularly in the UK, running had kind of hit that cultural 
benchmark that cycling had set with mm-hmm. with the likes of Sebastian Coe and Steve Ovet and Steve Cram and and Peter Elliott, these these like British milers. And New Zealand had it with the Kiwis, the Kiwi milers, the Kiwis who could fly. Um, so at times culturally, countries have had their moments, you know, where the the drama of of Seb Coe against Steve Ovet, that was front page news. And culturally and politically people were aligned to one or two of those athletes so you know you had you had the maybe the upper class or the elite class were behind Seb Coe and then you might have the kind of blue collar working class behind Steve Ovet I don't think that exists anymore but in cycling that still exists and and it has done for such a long period of time that these races are steeped in in romanticism and the stories of bravery and riders who would ride off the front in crazy conditions and snow and they wouldn't be wearing gloves and you'd hear them you know they got frostbite and lost a finger or they stopped on the side of the road and took a bottle of wine off someone and drank the bottle of wine to just keep warm whilst they were racing you know these stories that that you hear and you read about it it just it develops a a kind of romantic ideal of, of the sport so that's the biggest cultural difference. I, I think people identify with cycling culture when they buy into it. It becomes part of their their whole identity, even off the bike, and how they you know how they dress and and yeah, the the world they live in. Whereas, I think running is still seen by many people as a it's a way to keep fit, and you know the racing scene is irrelevant. I, I you know they don't identify. The, Boston Marathon one day of the year people care about running and then when the marathon goes past they 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 don't care anymore I think there's a little bit more when you when you become a cyclist you you care and you start watching cycling and reading about it and and you know a lot more about the sport so that's a long answer so I think I think running could do a better job you know reminding people of the great history of the sport and you know sometimes it, it gets lost I talk to I talk to kids Mario Providence College kids, you know, they don't even know, they don't know who Bob Kennedy is. And it, it irks the heck out of me, as you know, like as someone who loves the sport, I'm like, you guys need to, it's not all about what happened last season. It's this, this sport was built over years of great runners and uh, people should pay more attention to it. So I think in cycling, they do, they, they love to go back and look at the old Tour de France's and to read the stories of, of bravery that the riders did when the Tour de France was twice as long and had no support. People read about that stuff. So they become more steeped in the culture of it. Has steeping yourself in the culture of cycling's history influenced how you think about your job in marketing at New Balance in the running category specifically? Yeah, some it has. And you know, I've had trouble translating it sometimes. You know, one thing I do love about cycling is they uh, they don't apologize for the peak of the sport. Whereas I sometimes feel like there's a re- not resentment, but almost like people are scared to talk too much about the peak, the the pinnacle of running, because it seems so alien to someone who might be coming into the sport or so intimidating mm-hmm. to someone who might be coming into the sport. And uh, so I did definitely have some, I, I wished we and all shoe companies, you know, always used elite runners and, and always captured 
like the true essence of what it means to try and be a really, really good runner. And that doesn't mean a really fast runner winning medals, but someone who's really committed, capturing that like, you know what, I work a 12-hour day, but no matter what happens, I'm going to get my run in, even if it means I have to get up at 4 a.m. Like that, that essence, sometimes I think the marketing in general for running went too soft and it was too much like this is this is good for you and it's fun and we're all happy and that's whilst that's true running is also really hard and i think cycling seems to like embrace the 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 fact that it's a tough sport whereas running sometimes we shy away from the fact that it's a tough sport so i think we did a good job over the years at new balance by definitely balancing both and then you know a brand like Tracksmith, for example, they do a really good job of capturing the essence of the sport. Uh, and then, you know, other brands kind mm-hmm. of steep in and step into it and step out of it. But you have to know your audience. And and the truth is, mo- like I said earlier on, most of the audience in running doesn't really want to kill themselves and doesn't want to do hill repeats until they until they throw up. They just want to run and be part, part of running culture and maybe do their, you know, turkey trot or do their July 4th 5K. And that's their goal. And that's beautiful as well. So it's, it, running marketing needs to be a little bit more accessible and a little bit softer. But for a purist like yourself or like myself, we're going to be more attracted to an image of an athlete really putting themselves through the ringer. As an industry, do you think we need to do more to close that gap between the folks at the front of the pack and those at the back or those who are coming into the sport for the first time? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question, Mario, because I would like to see it. I, you know, we try to do it a lot at New Balance. Uh, we use our, I think we use our athletes to the point where like they sometimes are like, okay, I don't want to have to do another, you know, <laughs> Zoom call with a running store or another, you know, meet up with a running group. But, you know, they're, they're, they're very committed to it. But so we do try to, to bridge the gap. I think the best way is is at the high school level. You know, the one of the best meets of the year for me that New Balance sponsors is the the high school nationals. When you go down there and, you know, a couple of years ago we brought Sid McLaughlin who had just signed for New Balance and we brought her to the meet. And that was a great example of bridging the gap. She was like a pop star. I mean, it was like bringing Rihanna in. No joke. We're talking we had to get security. I didn't, the events team that was managing it, they had to get security for her because kids were, were really, really impressed that she, she had come and to, to watch this meet and at a venue where she, you know, developed her own amazing running ability and, uh, where she had all her, her successes in high school, she came back and it was amazing. So I do think that like at that level, you can carry it through to college, bringing new people into the sport and getting them to connect with the very elite, I think is better now than it's been for a long time. You know, with, with the, the advent of, of mediums like this, uh, this podcast, The Morning Shakeout, or, you know, a Rich Roll podcast, or any of these other kind of sport, sport and health and lifestyle podcasts that include good runners, really, really good. And then some, there's been just some great personalities with, with the, the likes of Lauren Fleshman's and Cara Goucher's and and Meb Kafleski's that like have been able to connect with the new runner in a very, you know, approachable way. I think it's uh, only going to get better. And the more elite runners themselves can market themselves as being approachable 
and being friendly and being just like you and going through the same trials and tribulations as someone who's trying to break 50 minutes for 10K as, as trying to break 27 minutes for 10K, the more they do that, the more they, the, that gap will be bridged. Let's go down that road a little bit further. 20 years ago, you were an NCAA champion coming out of school, trying to make a go of it as a professional runner. There are plenty of top-tier collegiate athletes today, even second-tier collegiate athletes today, who are trying to make it as a professional athlete. How have the job responsibilities of a professional runner evolved or changed over the past 20 years? Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's radically different. For, first off, the standard right now of athlete coming out is ridiculous. I mean, I I feel so sorry for that male 359 miler or that female, you know, 334 miler, 434 miler that are like really, really fast, but like they're just, they're not even getting a free pair of shoes. You know, if you were a sub four minute miler in, in 2000, you were pretty good. You were a top 20 guy in the country. Now you're a sub four minute mile, you might be a top 50 guy in the country. So it's tough. So they definitely have to bring something else to the table. I think training groups have been a real, real positive. There's always been some element of training groups. But speaking for New Balance, mm -hmm. what we get out of Mark Coogan's group, aka Coog's crew, Al Purrier and all those guys, Al was on your, on your podcast, I know, like we get a lot out of that group. And they share their training and they share their group training. Our team, uh, New Balance Manchester in the UK, uh, coached by Steve Vernon over there, amazing group. They share their stories. They, they, they constantly post on Instagrams. They have like ask me anything sessions. They do, you know, really, really good storytelling about their training. And then team boss with Emma Coburn and Curry McGee, Danny Jones, those guys are amazing. At sharing what they do. So we've getting these groups and then those groups are very transparent and that's part of the job now. You know, as much as social media is a nuisance and extremely annoying, it's also can be quite inspiring and, 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 and it, it can change people's day-to-day -day attitudes by seeing someone say something or seeing someone do something. So the fact that these groups have such big followings, they represent our brand so well. They're they take the marketing of our products, whatever company they represent, they take the marketing of that product and they take it to a new level where you don't have to buy a print ad anymore to, to show your shoes. You just see them every day on these athletes in motion, in the gym, before training, after training and in casual settings. And there's this real great transparency. So the responsibility of, of, of an athlete coming out now needs to be a combination of integrity, off the track, uh, you know, fun, really good at sharing their experiences and, and being inspiring beyond good performances because people will support someone that, that is really honest and, and really transparent, whether it's over social media or through another medium, than someone who is super like uptight and very focused and not sharing what they're doing. I could be wrong. I mean, Galen Rupp doesn't have social media and yet people are really behind Galen uh, when he when he runs. But for the most part, 
I think what you what you what we've seen over the last few years is people are gravitating to those that have big social media followings and they're like, oh man, I follow you in social. I see you doing this. It's amazing. So I think our 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 girls are particularly good at it, as good as anybody in the industry, and we get a ton out of it as a brand. Let's have a little thought experiment here. How do you think Keith Kelly, the NCAA champion, would fare if he were coming out of school in 2021 rather than 2001 with everything that has changed over the past two decades? Well, I think <laughs> I, I wouldn't be an NCAA champion if it was 2019. <laughs> Maybe I would be. I don't know. In cross country, I think things are relatively the same so i probably still would have would have won a few of those championships over the years in cross country maybe i'd run faster on the track as well because there's a lot more information out there now and beyond beyond the mm -hmm. advent of, of footwear technology which i do want to talk about and i want to get your 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 insights on it but i just think with with how much information is out there people are just living more professionally as, as athletes now, even from the high school level, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm, I was, I was at the very tail end, I think of the, you only run and you don't do anything else culture, uh, of, of like eighties and nineties. We go out, we do our training runs really, really hard. And then we don't do anything else. And on the weekends you have a few beers. I think that, had all changed and I would have definitely went with the times because at times I could be very focused and serious. So if I came out as, you know, relatively speaking as a good runner and with all the access to social media and being able to talk a lot about music and things I like, I'm sure I would have really embraced all of this stuff. I probably would have a vlog of some description on YouTube and I'd probably be, you know, having, sharing my DJ sets and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I probably would have added value to the outside of running part of the culture. But uh, in some ways it was, it was nice to have had the experience where you can kind of be left alone when things aren't going well and not have to, to, to answer to, to a fan base as such. <laughs> I think you'd be great at that stuff. I forgot about your blog until you mentioned it a little while ago. And I remember following and this was back in the heyday of running blogs i had a blog spot account at the that. time as well but i remember that's how i got to know you just beyond what you had done on the cross-country course and on the track because you were posting about radiohead and the smiths and morrissey and whatever shows <laughs> that you had gone to in you know in the preceding weeks and i was like oh this this guy's like pretty interesting outside of the fact that he can just bury himself on the cross-country course yeah the, the blogs were fantastic tom mccardle is the first one i remember yes to follow a true you know, and your listeners don't probably don't know who tom mccardle is but nope. he's another new england <laughs> legend of running uh, who succumbed to a very similar injury cycle and injury plague as 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 I did? So we we definitely identified with each other. But Tom posted all his training on on his blog, and it became somewhat famous on the on the Let's Run dot com message boards. And then Nate Jenkins had a very popular blog for just the madness of training that he was doing. And uh, then my blog became popular because it became popular with the music piece of it and the, the crossover between running and, mm -hmm. and music. And I ended up getting interviewed a few times uh, to share music 
recommendations or playlists for runners to listen to and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It was a good way because I just wasn't doing enough running to warrant talking about, about it on a blog. You know, there's only so much you can talk about in a six mile run. Nate Jenkins, meanwhile, is doing like 12 miles in the morning and 20 miles in the afternoon. I'm like, eh, no one's going to care about my 10K run. So I have to add some value here. So I'll talk about that you know the arcade fire record i was listening to when i was running and talk about the songs and talk about what that means and so it, it kind of developed a life of its own and then in 2010 people stopped reading blogs and started watching youtube so that was the end of that when did you stop yours mario oh i mean it had to have been right around the time that I started working for a competitor in 2010. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think that blog, marioruns.blogspot.com, I, I believe it's still online. And my mom passed away in 2008. And I remember writing about that for the blog. And I was injured very significantly not long after that. And I remember writing about that for the blog. So I stopped it probably right before or right as I was starting to work for competitor in 2010. But to follow up on that, what was really fascinating about it at the time and why I was so into it, I, yeah, I loved looking at Nate's logs and the ridiculousness of his training because he was following like a Lydiard program to the T doing the stuff that you had talked to, like, you know, 15 miles in the morning at six minute pace and then a slow 10 in the afternoon and then seeing if he could hit a 200 mile week and Tom McArdle same sort of thing. There's a guy in Boston named Ed Baker who was doing all sorts of ridiculousness and posting it to his blog. And I was fascinated by that. But beyond just the miles and the times and the paces, people would put in little snippets about their lives. And you had to look for it in some cases, or maybe it was in the summary. I started doing a bit of the same. I, I remember actually I got myself into trouble because I had posted about a job interview that I had gone on, not realizing that the people who interviewed me <laughs> found my blog at the time. And needless to say, I didn't get that job. But um, you would write about your life and the things that you were dealing with. And people would leave comments and you would start a dialogue in that way. And I mean, I think it's interesting looking back now what I'm doing with this podcast and my newsletter because I was planting the seeds for kind of where I landed now. I mean, 12 plus years later, but it was really interesting because you got to know about like some of Tom McArdle's quirks. I mean, yeah, he was the dude who ran 150 miles a week, but he was also walking around Dartmouth in a bathrobe uh, at some, you know, some, yeah, some exactly. party off campus and he would write about it in addition to, you know, his, his training. And I, I think just like, you know, getting to know someone's personality a little bit better, um, you know, really, really made you know, really made that a, a cool place to, to be and share your own experiences. That's right. I, I, I also followed Ed's, uh, Ed Baker's because he was my, my era. He graduated from Harvard around the same time I graduated from PC and, and we went to nationals together. He was a, an individual from, from Harvard. And funny enough, when mm -hmm. recently, a couple of years ago, Ed made a bit of a comeback in the, in the, tri he started to do Ironman triathlons or Triathlon. something. And, and, he he was very transparent about his training, but using YouTube and using the the, the modern day version of blogging to describe his his training. And I, I followed it, and it was just like it's it's such a full circle moment the the days of the blog spot. But you know, I, I kind of do miss it too. I, I miss the the excitement of of after a day writing my own blog piece, sharing some music, and then 
checking out Mario runs and checking out Tom McArdle and checking out Nate Jenkins and just checking out what everyone was doing. There's just so much information now. I mean, it's not, it's not as, it doesn't feel as, as sacred as it once did uh, reading someone's, someone's training blog. Let's talk about music. You've mentioned it a few times over the course of this conversation. I know from knowing you that it plays a very profound role in your life and the bands that you love. I mean, it's like anything else in your life that you love. You love them. You will go to the ends of the earth to see a Radiohead show in concert, for for example. When do you first remember music playing an important role in your life? When I was really young. So my parents are both deaf and, you know, so growing up in a deaf household is, it's a unique, I mean, it's not, it's all I knew, but you know, in hindsight, it's unique, right? You know, you, you, it's not like my parents are listening to music. So I'm getting exposed to music from a young age, but they did understand the need for us, for my brother and I to, to be exposed to, to music. So when we were really young, my dad bought us a stereo. Now, my dad has never heard a thing in his life. So he's got a stereo. He knows music. He knows it's a thing. You know, they watch TV. They know it's a thing. And they want me and my brother to be exposed to it. So we would listen to the radio. And I don't know if it heightened my desire to to, to follow music and, and, and to use music in my life. But I, it must have because from a very young age, I became obsessed with buying music and buying records. And I bought a set of turntables so I could DJ when I was 16. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I spent all my pocket money on, on music, on records and anything I made, I would spend on records. And I had a huge collection and it just kept blowing up from there. And, and, and then you find different genres of music and then you start going to see live music and the, the whole culture of being being someone who's into music, who doesn't play in a band or can't sing, but just being really into it. Yeah, it just has never really stopped for me. You know, I got to college and became a DJ on, on the Providence College radio show. I was playing any DJ opportunities I could get. I was playing out, playing techno sets uh, all through my pro running career, where I use the term pro very, very loosely there because I barely, barely made any money. But when I... During the time when I was trying to run full time, my hobbies were just to, to play, to DJ, DJ sets. And uh, I would spend hours just immersed in music and music culture and going to see bands. So you're right, though, about the ends of the earth and going to see to see shows and spending a lot of money. To me, to me, it was a less so now, but certainly in my 20s and in, in, in the early part of my 30s, to me, that was the best way to spend to spend any cash I had was to go to New York City to, and spend a night in a hotel to go and see Radiohead at Madison Square Garden or to see uh, Wolf Parade perform or any band, see Ian Brown perform and, and just go and, and, and look upon it as a, as a really well-spent well weekend. Do you remember the first live show you ever attended? Yes. It was, it was a rave and a band called The Prodigy and the prodigy, became, prodigy the prodigy became a huge band yeah and uh the mm. the kind of le the lead guy from the prodigy keith flint passed away a couple of years ago which was very sad but uh the prodigy i saw them in 1991 new year's eve i would have been 14 
And that was the first kind of big show, big event I went to. And then the first rock band I would have seen probably would have been an early Oasis or early Blur tour back in like 1994 when I was about seven, 16 or 17. And then I saw Radiohead for the first time. Were you hooked on the live experience? Oh, big time, big time. It was amazing because we, there's no new, think about it. Like there's no YouTube. Now you can watch a, a concert from your office, from your bedroom. You can like, they stream Coachella. Every, every stage is streamed live. So like, yes, you can be there and be part of the experience, but you can also be like an old curmudgeon and sit at home and just watch the show. Back then, like to, to see a band was everything. It was like, wow, I'm, I'm standing in front of Damon Albarn. I'm standing in front of Tom York. He's right there. And this is the, this is the Benz, the record I've played to death and they're playing it live. So it, it's amazing. And uh, it's why I still to this day prefer, you know, small venues and find a band that, you know, may not be super popular. Uh, I still love to go and see Wolf Parade. I mean, Radiohead, but I'd love to see a band like Wolf Parade, which was the last live show I've seen uh, on the 9th of February last year here in, in Salt Lake City, but seeing them in a small venue and been like, these are my favorite songs. These are my favorite artists. And they're standing five feet away from me playing their instruments. And, you know, this is what, this is what I live for in terms of my social life. And that, that hasn't changed and that hasn't faded over the years. How has music helped you through some tough periods in your life? You know, I think, I think music for me, it was, it's, it was very, very important. I, and I don't have the words necessarily to articulate, but when the times were good, I've got music that I've got music that I used to listen to pre-race. I've got my sets that I always went back to in, in running. And then when I was really down in the dumps and when I referenced that period of drinking too much and really probably should have seen someone, uh, for, for the kind of bitterness that I had in me that like, I just couldn't even go for a jog anymore. And running was just, I was good enough to, to perhaps go to the Olympics, but I just never had the opportunity. The music I was listening to and, and being obsessed with all of those bands in the indie rock scene in the late, in the late noughts, 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, I think, I just think it was really, really important that I had that because I had no one else to talk to really. And I wasn't opening up about how I felt, but I could listen to, listen to a record on my iPod. And at the time the iPods were pretty big and you could put like thousands and thousands of songs on there. And I had such a comprehensive iPod library and I would spend hours. And when I was going through phases of insomnia due to like the anxiety of not being able to run anymore, I would spend all night listening to music and at one point I was living with Tom McCardle up in Boston and I, I was going through one of those phases where I was just in a bad place mentally and I would listen to, to records all night and f continue to find new bands. And my mission was to always find someone else to listen to that no one else was lis listening to. And uh, yeah, just played it. It's really important. You have to have something to turn to. For some people it's writing, for some people it's books, for some people it's drugs and and alcohol. And, and, and for me, it was maybe a bit too much alcohol and then a lot of music, an awful lot of listening to music. I appreciate you sharing that. Put you on the spot. You're at a small venue. It's the last show that you're ever going to see. Who headlines and who opens? 
last show I'm ever going to see Radiohead headlines and Wolf Parade opens. They're my two favorite bands and they're, they're two bands that I, I would travel anywhere to see and to see Radiohead in a small venue one last time would be, would be extremely meaningful for me to see them do a greatest hits uh, live would be, I mean, I, I've seen them in small venues. I've seen Tom York in small venues, but over the last, you know, 15 years, it, it, I've seen, I've seen Radiohead about 25 times and it's all, you know, for the most part, it's been big venues. It's been stadiums. It's been TD Bank North Garden in Boston. It's been, you know, the Bell Center in Montreal. It's been Madison Square Garden. So I've seen Wolf Parade in small venues. So to see something in between the two, a medium-sized venue where I've got a good view, I'll take those two bands. Absolutely. I had a feeling that Radiohead would be your headliner. Yeah. Probably comes as no surprise to anyone listening to this who knows you. <laughs> no, it probably doesn't. And there's lots of other bands I would love to put in there, but I mean, you, you, you're telling me you're telling me I only get two, so I have to pick my two favorites. But there's lots of bands <laughs> I'd love to see again. I, I, you know, I'd love to see Blur again perform as a, as a band. I didn't see them on their reunion tour because they, they, you know, they headlined Coachella, and I didn't. I've never been to that. And then when they played in Dublin, I was over here, so I would love to see a Blur reunion. And then there's no one really else I haven't seen that I'd love to see. Um, you know, I've seen, apart from bands that have broken up, I'd love to see the Smiths perform as a band. But, you know, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I think uh, there's not many bands left that I haven't seen that I really want to see. So I've been f very fortunate and very invested in, in going to see everyone I can. To steer this back to running in the here and now, how has the pandemic over the past year affected the running industry from your vantage point as someone who works in it? It's been it's been really good for the running industry. Uh, it hasn't been good for you know retailers in the sense that they did have to close their doors around the country, so and right around the world, we should say. So that was unfortunate, and there was a really tough period for retailers not just independent small retailers but even the the big guys even the sporting goods players i mean they they have to close a lot of stores and furlough a lot of staff in in april and in may so it was looking dicey and i actually thought some stores would close mario i didn't think stores would make it but man on the flip side to that after a couple of months of lockdown people realize what's important family's important you know being happy is important and being healthy and, and getting outside and getting fresh air is important. So very quickly, tons of people who couldn't play golf anymore, who couldn't go to a gym anymore because the gyms were closed, who couldn't, you know, go to swimming pools and, and, and all these things that were, that they couldn't do. What's the easiest thing to do? What's the lowest risk thing to do? And what's the lowest barrier to entry is to buy a pair of running shoes, maybe buy a pair of running shorts. You don't even need it you know, a really nice running top in the summer. You can wear no shirt if you're a dude. And if you're a female, you're wearing a, a tank top and a sports bra. Tons of new runners. And the research came back that there was literally millions of people who had never shopped for running product who were starting to go out and do two or three miles every day. And that carried into the latter part of the year, which saw a huge rebound for independent retail saw a huge rebound for digital retailers and, and for sporting goods retailers. 
And now that we enter 2021, where the pandemic is still a thing and it's just as bad as it's been for the last for the last uh, eight or nine months, with more optimism and more of an end in sight, people are have have embraced this idea of running and fitness. So I hope that you know USA Track and Field and you know organizations can capitalize on this and get these people that have found running to start entering races to start entering big events, to start training for marathons and to start getting behind the sport of athletics, like to, to realize, wow, I do this thing mm. and I run, you know, my 10 minute miles, but there's guys out there that can run miles in under four minutes. And there's girls out there that can run miles in under 420. And I want to know more about them. And how can we back to your very earlier question? How can we connect that dot? We have all these yeah. new runners, USA track and field has an opportunity now to capitalize on a huge amount of running culture and a running boom that we haven't seen for a very long time, maybe since 2008, since the recession. This is probably the biggest running boom we've seen. And right now, USA has amazing runners running amazing times. Great opportunity right now for the for the industry and a great opportunity for the sport. I'm with you on that. And I think as we look ahead to the Olympic trials a few months from now here in the U.S. and maybe the games later this summer and the return of road races and big marathons that the interest is there, especially from the new runners who have never done these things and would like to immerse themselves for the first time. But to your point, I mean, USA Track and Field needs to jump in right now and say, hey, a few months from now, we are going to have the best athletes in this country in the sprints, in the middle distances, long distances, even field events, jumps. Yeah. They are going to be competing in Oregon. It's going to be on NBC. These are the folks that are going to represent our country. And not that everyone's going to try and make an Olympic team, but be inspired by these folks. Like, let them show you what's possible and then take advantage of opportunities in your local area or when we can travel to go and run some of the same events that they're going to be running later exactly. this year. And I mean, I think that'd be an amazing thing for just running as an industry and as a sport. Yes. And, and, and follow these athletes and, and learn who they are, learn who Elle Purrier is, who just broke the American record in the, in the two mile and follow her journey as she tries to make the Olympic team. She's salt of the earth from Vermont. No, no pretense, not, not some elite, you know, hides under her bed except when she's running there's so much information and so much transparency from runners right now it's easy to become fans of of athletes it's easy to follow what they do and i just hope that we 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 can capitalize on, on the running boom but definitely one of the good things to come from it mario was uh you know the last event that we both were probably at was the olympic trials in atlanta and yes i was pretty mm -hmm. optimistic at that trials because there was a huge fan base there it was awesome. We we had a we had a, a bar that we had rented, you know, use of from the New Balance team. And it was just great to see ordinary people so psyched about what was going on in the trials because they had someone they knew in the trials race that just qualified, someone that was gonna run, you know, two forty and but they were into it and they were learning about the the athletes and I was like, Man, this is this is gonna be a great Olympic year. And then of course a week later we're we're cancelling you know, talking to people. So it's still there. That spirit that was shown in Atlanta is still there. And there's just more people behind it now. So we need to get everyone behind the athletes as we head to Eugene. And I'm not optimistic that there'll be fans in the stadium in, in Eugene, but 
I'm, I'm optimistic that they'll have a trials of some some description. So to your point, we, we need to get people to, to watch in and buy into and follow the careers of all of these runners and, and throwers and jumpers. Looking ahead, if you had to make predictions, what do you think are going to be some of the lasting changes we see in the sport of running, but also the industry of running? Well, I think right now the, the shoe technology debate, again, would love your, love your point of view on it, knowing that you're coaching athletes and you have athletes that are, that are competing in this world now. This is, a t- this is a chain, an industry change that's going to last forever. We have the pre-shoe technology era and the post-shoe technology era. And you know, if you're on the one side of 2016 or 2017, you're in the, in the pre-era. Mm-hmm. I don't. New Balance makes an amazing racing flat now that's uh, that's super fast and we've got spikes that are super fast. And so I think it's great that runners have the options. I don't like the fact that I look at races now and I see an athlete run really, really fast. And in the 1990s, you'd say, are they on EPO? And now you're saying, what kind of shoes are they wearing? And it's just power. I, I, need, mm-hmm. to re- I need to reset myself mentally and stop comparing, stop you know comparing someone who ran two eleven or a female that ran two thirty two, and then look at someone now running two oh nine or two twenty six and say, wow, they're that much better. Is it what what has changed? Well, I think training has definitely changed. Nutrition's gotten better. I think just knowledge of the body and health has gotten better. Sleep people are paying more attention to a lot of the small bits. And then the shoes have, have, have gotten better and have made people just run faster. So I think that's going to be the big takeaway of, of our current era right now, the, the shoe debate. What do you think, Mario? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this myself. I wrote about it in my newsletter this past week because starting in 2016, we saw it in the marathon. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. there was this tidal shift in regard to how fast people were running at the top of the sport on down and going back a year to the Olympic trials, looking at the feet of all of the competitors. I don't know the exact number, but it was definitely over 75, if not over 90% of the participants who are racing in some sort of carbon plated PBAX foam super shoe from you know, pick your brand. Uh, And I don't think that's going to change at all. And more recently, looking at what's happened on the track, which is not nearly as popular with the mainstream as the marathon is. I mean, you're you're seeing marathoners who are trying to break four hours uh, or two hours and a half marathon going to buy super shoes because they think it can buy them a few minutes. I mean, if you're buying super spikes, I mean, you're you, you know, you're not going out there trying to break a 10 minute mile. No offense to anyone trying to break a 10 minute mile, but it's just not as it's not as commercial. It's not as as popular. So I don't think it's getting quite the attention that the shoes were when it was marathon records that were going down like seemingly week after week. Um, but we're seeing it on the track now. The game has definitely changed. I mean, as you said earlier in this conversation, you're a 359 miler now. I don't want to say it doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't mean what it did. 
years ago. I mean, no. it's almost like that's a that's a dime a dime a dozen for a U.S. male now, especially when you've got high schoolers who are breaking four minutes with more regularity than they than they ever have, or if they're threatening four minutes with more regularity than they ever have. Um, so I I think we are in a new shoe era. I have suggested in the past that almost like baseball. I mean, they say you know, pre-steroids era and then post-steroids era in terms of home runs and all this sort of stuff. Well, I almost think you need to say that in regard to the shoes and running. It's like pre-2016 and post-2016 because I don't think a 209 marathon now is worth the same as a 209 marathon 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, that's just the, that's just the truth. And that's okay. I mean, technology evolves. It's happened in every other sport that I can think of cycling the other sport that you're involved in i mean that technology has changed a lot over the years and cyclists have gotten faster um but it is an interesting thought experiment and philosophical discussion in running as the shoes relate to epo as you said years ago it would have been like well what's that guy on and now it's like well what shoes are on his feet and you would hear cyclists talk about this especially i don't know as much in running but you know lance armstrong would say like everybody was on drugs. I, I still would have been the best either way. And now you could almost make that same argument with shoes. It's like, well, everyone has a super shoes on his feet and they would have been the best anyway. And it's like, well, how is, how is that different? Well, it's different because one, you're not injecting something into your body. This is a piece of equipment that, you know, everyone is going to use to some, some degree, but it's, it's, it's similar um, in terms of how you think about it. And I'm rambling here and I'm kind of going off on all kinds of tangents. But I mean, I've been thinking about it similarly to how doping has been talked about and continues to be talked yeah. about in, in some sports and not saying like everyone who's worn a carbon plated shoe is doping. I certainly have. But the 227.33 that I ran in 2018, what would that have been in a non-plated pair of super shoes, I think I probably would have run about 230, 231 if I'm being, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm being honest. But if we're in an era now where that's widely available and everyone has the opportunity to wear that and they feel comfortable, I mean, I guess it does level the playing field, but it's still not comparing apples to apples when you're looking back, you know, certainly 10 years, 15 years, 20 years to what folks were running early 2000s, yeah. 1990s, 80s, and previous to that. So that's why in running, unlike other sports where technology has, you know, golf clubs have gotten better, you know, tennis rackets have gotten better. There's, there's not this, there's not this continuous benchmark of the time, you know, like that's mm -hmm. what running has. And that's why even the cyclists will tell me like, no one says, how fast did Lance Armstrong win the Tour de France? You know, Lance Armstrong yeah. won the Tour de France. Someone, you know, someone else wins the Tour de France. No one compares the two times. They just, they're, they're Tour de France champions. We compare times in running. We always have done it and we always will. So an American record, you know, American records are going to go down and the shoes are not just American records. Look at this past weekend. There was Aussie records, there was New yeah. Zealand records, there was American European records, record. European records, there was an Irish record in the 800. There was records all across the globe in these small indoor meets with no fans. So it does kind of remind you of this, the swimming days of the, the shark suit when people were jumping into swimming pools and breaking records. But it's a level playing field. Everyone has, has access, unlike, you know, some sports it's it's truly level all the brands are doing great product now i i think the new balance stuff that you know i i sell is is fantastic and as good as anything out there 
and I know our athletes and we have to make sure our athletes are on a level playing field. So we make sure, you know, Emma Coburn and L had the, the best spikes available to them. Those spikes happen to help them along with a lot of training and a lot of determination and a lot of like ability to break American records. So that's, that's the era we're in now. And I just have to wrap my head around how fast everyone's running kids, college kids running 350 in the mile, two of them looking like they were doing a time trial. Yeah. Like 350. I'm like, oh, that, that's the, like, that's the holy grail of, of mile, miling to break the 350 mark. And you've got two college kids doing it at a, with no spectators in the stadium in what essentially was a time trial. And their teammate who is behind him looks like he's got his doors blown off and has been blown out the back. Still ran 353, 353. which prior to his two teammates ahead of him crossing the line would have been the second fastest time ever run by an NCAA athlete. And it just, it, it does make your head spin, especially when you've been involved with the sport as long as guys like us have for two plus decades now at this point and you've and you've seen you know what's happened and this is definitely unprecedented times but along those lines and to another of the points that you made a little while ago because of the pandemic and there not being as many events because a lot of them have been canceled or or postponed high school kids college kids especially are able to train like professional athletes and i mean you were a product of the ncaa system i'm a product of the NCAA system, it's real easy to over race as a collegiate athlete, uh, especially if you're good and your track season extends like well into summer and then you get a few weeks break and you're right into cross country. And I think with the last year, a lot of meets and stuff getting canceled, major marathons getting canceled, athletes in general have less opportunity to compete when they do get a chance to compete. One, they want to make the most of it because they're not sure when that next opportunity is going to come. And this being an Olympic year, um, they want to hit a qualifying time if that's something that is important to them. Um, you know, they might be trying to hit a time that makes them worthy of a pro contract. That's important to them. Um, but also they're just not over raced. I think athletes in general are a lot fresher than they've been in years because they've had this forced break and they've been able to train continuously. And if they have been fighting off, I mean, this is a story of your career. If they have been fighting off, you know, niggles, they weren't forced to be ready for a race in two weeks, they could actually take care of the injury and get back to training consistently for a long period of time. And then they race when they're ready. And, and that has to factor in as well. So I don't think it's all shoes. Um, the shoes have certainly made a difference. This is the argument that I made this week, but there are so many other factors that just aren't as measurable that have an impact on performance. And as you said, in our sport, yeah, we know who won the race, but you have a time attached to your name and you can compare that time to what you ran last year or the year before or what guys ran 10 or 20 years ago. And, and I think that's what makes it a lot different from golf, from tennis, from cycling, even from that standpoint. Yeah. And, and, and I, I 100% agree. I didn't read your newsletter this week, Mario, but I don't want to be a curmudgeon here and be like, Oh, it's the shoes. No, it's, right. it's, it's a combination of everything. I mean, I talk to our athletes, they're desperate to, to perform. I mean, they've been training, they've put, been putting in uninterrupted training blocks now with no pressure, and then they go to these meets. And I actually think that the fact that they go to meets with no fans and less pressure, it does, you know, you, we've all had those workouts where it's like, I wish I could have raced today because it was so easy. It's like, yeah. I think it's all contributing. So it is a perfect storm of, of amazing spikes. 
not as obvious as the as the as the marathon running, but it's a perfect storm of 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 the COVID period period rest and 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 great mm-hmm. desire to race mixed with great shoes. I'll send you a link to the post I wrote in my newsletter once we get off this conversation so you can check it out. But you just brought up a point that I didn't reference, and it's that of environment as well. I mean, there have been no fans at any of these meets that have happened over the past year. Even looking at the roads, the marathon project in Arizona this past year, much different environment than a major marathon where people try to go fast all the time. And as an athlete myself, I know you can appreciate this. It is a different feeling when you're on that starting line and it feels more like practice with your teammates where you're just trying to run the best workout possible versus being on the start line, fans surrounding you from, you know, all angles, people going crazy. You, you can't even like, you know, get inside your own head because there's just so much stimuli around you. I mean that again, you can't quantify that, but for sure that has an effect on some athletes who struggle when they're in an environment where it's obvious that the pressure's on. There are a ton of fans in the stands. There's the energy and excitement of the meet. Um, there's scoring involved in all that. And a lot of those things have been stripped away. Yeah. And I mean, look, I remember Al Purrier running four minutes for 1500 meters at the Wesley college track <laughs> in the middle of summer, like uh, on, in practice on a, on a Wednesday morning or whatever it was. And I yeah. do think there's, I do think there's something to it. So it's not, it's not just the spikes. It's a combination of a lot. But I, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day, like what would Hisham El Garouge have run for the mile if he wasn't wearing Jasari's <laughs> and he was wearing these Nike Zoom dragonflies? Would he have run? I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have run much quicker. Maybe he would have run 339 for the mile. Who, who knows? But it's uh it's something that I, I need to, to reconcile in my head, not compare eras and just watch the races because the races are still brilliant. The, the actual races themselves haven't changed and they're still, they're still awesome to watch. So yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the shoe debate. A few more things before we wrap up this conversation. I want to steer it back to you and your career. One of the things that I always admired about you as an athlete, and I think this extends beyond what you've done as a runner and a cyclist is your ability to just go so deep into the well and to pour the entirety of yourself into whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a running race and you're trying to place as high as you can or in your day-to-day job trying to do the best job that you can for the brand that you work for. Where does that come from in you just this ability to go so hard and to dig so deep regardless of the situation uh, i think you know i've gotten a little bit softer i think uh at, at one time that was that was very very true and i think it just comes from where i came from my parents and and uh the desire to i mario i was a running nerd in high school i mean i'm talking I'm talking posters on my wall of Steve Cram and 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 Steve Ovette, and I, I desperately wanted to be good at running, and that that desperation meant that like you know what I didn't have the the best running form, and I didn't have I, I was missing some things, but I I could will myself to to win races, and I could will myself to 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 black out, uh, basically because 
I was like, this is my opportunity to get to the United States and to get to the college system. And then you get to the college system and then you're like, okay, wow, now I realize I'm not that good because there's so many guys that are good. So I'm going to have to get ready to hurt myself to get really, really good at running in the college system. And then you get to that level. And then for me, after that was just constantly breaking. So I could never really go as deep as I wanted because I would break. But I don't know where the desire to win comes from other than the desire to 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 just feel like I've done my best and to know that when I when it's all said and done that you know I can't really have any regrets you know if if it was Reebok and we were getting a paycheck from Reebok I had to know that I was doing my best for Reebok and I was doing the right thing by by Reebok who are paying me and I think that's instilled in a lot of people I don't think I'm unique in in that sense um, but the, the ability to, to, to go hard and to, to, to hurt yourself. Yeah. I think some athletes have it better than others. And I, I would put myself, maybe I could at times go, go fairly deep. And, uh, I don't know really where, where that comes from. You know, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's one of those things where it was more, it was more of a desire just to know I've, I've done my best. And if my best wasn't good enough, which in many times it wasn't, that's okay. Because then I could walk away and be like, well, that's as good as I am. And I think knowing that gives can give any athlete a, a little sense of peace or a sense of calm. But uh, yeah, wanting to win is nice. And, and it's, a, it's a lot of fun to try your best and to know, to know you did your best. And if your best is good enough, then that's really, really good. That's the, that's the happy place. And I've been fortunate, Mario, to have maybe five or six times in in my short running career where I did accomplish the goal I set. I went really hard. It wasn't easy. I had to go at times above what I thought I was capable of. And that's the most satisfying feeling in the world. For me, it was like I wanted to finish top 30 in the World Cross Country Championships. I finished 22nd. I knew I went as hard as I could. I knew to get 21st would have been, you know, there's not really much else I could have done to get 21st. So that was feeling good or to win nationals and cross. I wanted to win the race. I won it in the last, you know, 50 meters. I couldn't have done much more. If someone was ahead of me, I couldn't have caught them. So knowing you've given yourself 100% into whatever you're doing. And if it comes off, it's the best feeling in the world. So it was maybe chasing that feeling a little bit. One thing you said earlier in this conversation that caught me by surprise that I wanted to follow up on is when you said you've had issues with confidence in the past and it was in the context of racing that you had mentioned it earlier, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into that. What do you mean that you've had confidence issues, whether it's in racing or other areas of your life? Well, because I was really good at cross country running and then, you know, I, this, this is going to sound cocky, but I don't mean it to be cocky at all because it just is what it is. But I could, I was never worried about racing anybody in cross country. Uh, maybe I was a little bit worried when Alan Webb showed up to, to, to Mary's Cup. But for the most part, if I was fit, I kind of knew I was going to be very hard to beat on a cross country course. I would take that same field and put us on a track. And I just, I'd look at other people running around me. They were taller than me because I was so hunched and so broken and a lot of getting beaten down on the track eroded all my confidence so i would go to track meets and i wouldn't expect ever to win a race and that sucked 
when you're coming off a cross-country a cross-country that I was very confident of winning. So, you know, even when I won nationals and cross, I was in great shape indoor. When we in that three k when we when we passed you with a with a lap to go, I was in great shape, <laughs> and I think if I had I had the confidence that I was carrying around when I was in the cross country mode, I think I might have run you know seven fifty that day instead of seven fifty five or fifty six or whatever we ran. I probably would have maybe won nationals in the five k instead of finishing third and letting David Kamani and, and Matt Lane run away from me. In the cross country, I wouldn't have let that happen, but I was just, I was always running scared and the track never felt comfortable to me. And I, yeah, I definitely lacked confidence. And, and by the end, I had no confidence on the track. I, I, I stopped the, the dream of going to the Olympics because I was like, I, I'm just not good enough for it. I wish there was an Olympics for cross country. Um, so com- confidence is, is, is something that, that for me was always tough to attain but I grew in confidence in cross country and then I grew in confidence in my professional career uh, because I, I really was comfortable with what I was doing. But on the track, too many injuries, get, getting my doors blown off too much, not being able to have that nice speed endurance sweet spot on the track. I could either go really, really fast or, or fairly slow. I was terrible at that you know, 64 second lap pace that you needed to be really good at for a 5k on the track. I was never comfortable at that pace. And yeah, I had no confidence that I was ever going to be successful on the track, especially after about 2001. Very quickly, it went downhill. So I think it affected me tremendously. When I had the opportunity to do well, I would create excuses in my head before the race. You know, this concept, um, um, Mario, I think a lot of runners do it. You probably did it yourself where you convince yourself that you're sick or you've got a head cold or you've got a niggle. You're making up Mm -hmm. the excuse before the race. I never did that in cross country ever. And in the track, I did it all the time. I was like, what am I going to tell Ray when I get beaten today? Like, that's a terrible attitude to have. And yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why it was. I just think it was a, it was a combination of, it felt like an alien sport to me. The most beautiful part and the most popular part of, of running is, is the track. And it was the thing I was weakest at and the piece that's probably least popular in distance running is cross country. And that's the one thing I was really good at, which is why I'm happy the NCAAs is going to be shown on ESPN for the next few years. And I just saw that announcement. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's why I love cross country running because it gives people like me who are not the most elegant track runners, the opportunity to, to race and compete and win against Olympic level track runners. It's the great equalizer. I think so. They always said it back back when I was a kid, cross country was really popular, much more so than it is now. And they used to always say that like the, the British national cross country championships had 3000 people would run that race. And, uh, you would have the milers versus the marathon runners over 14 K of cross country. And sometimes a miler would win. And sometimes a marathon runner would win. Sometimes it would be a Steve Ovet. Sometimes it'd be a Steve Jones. That's what's amazing. Uh, and uh, I talked to Paula Radcliffe about this when I was getting treatment from from Jar Hartman because she was one of the only other people I knew that loved cross country the same way I did. Like it was her favorite discipline, and uh, you know it's it, it's something that's we, we've lost. You know you don't see it anymore. You don't see professional runners get behind the national cross country championships like they used to. 
the NCAA is the last bastion of cross country in, in North America, and it's still one of the best foot races in the world. And I'm hoping that this coverage will 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 shine a spotlight on it and get more people doing it, and or at least get promoters to put on more cross country races in the fall because it's freaking amazing. I agree with you. And with any luck, hopefully someday we'll see it in the Olympic program. I know it's not going to be in it in 2024, but I still hold out hope that cross country will be an Olympic sport. I can't think of a better one for the athletics program that combines this team element of countries racing against one another, but the best milers, marathoners, 5K runners in the world all converging into the same race and just letting them have at it for whatever it's going to be, 8K, 10K, 12K. Yeah, I'd be amazing. And, and I, you know, I'd be, they could even put it in the Winter Olympics and, and, and have it as part of a sure. winter program, like where it's muddy and wet and, and, and like, you know, most of the Olympic Games, Winter Olympic venues are not necessarily blanketed in snow. Like it's, they're, especially low down like when they had them in vancouver it was really nice you could have had an awesome cross-country race but yeah just i think the emphasis needs to be put back i think athletics world, world athletics needs to do a better job with the world cross-country championships countries need to sell, send full teams to the world cross-country championships not just ex, you know there's been a, a little bit of a I think there's been a little bit of a lie down and roll over attitude towards cross country. Kenya is so good. Ethiopia and Kenya and Uganda are dominating. Well, get in there. I mean, you put you put the best six females or best six males in America on a cross country course that's, you know, tough. I think they do need to make the courses a little bit muddier and a little bit like different than the track and the road. You can, you'll see, you'll see athletes do really well and compete really well. And particularly on the women's side, I mean, you've, you've had, the likes of Dina Drossen and or Dina Castor and and Paul Radcliffe and so on winning Sonia O'Sullivan winning World Cross Country Championships. So I don't like this attitude that like it's it just it's all about East Africa and that's it. When when we were younger, the East Africans were still the best at it, but it was always amazing. You know, you had a, a Todd Williams finishing top ten, you had a John Brown from the UK finishing top ten when I was younger, and they were mixing it up. They were right there, and they were they were doing a running amazing and i wish we could get that back well even prior to that i mean you're irish but here in the u.s you go back to the days of pat porter who was competitive yeah. at the world level lynn jennings even before dina dross and dina castor i i mean probably i still i think the greatest cross-country runner we've ever had here in the united states but they were the best runners in the country period and to your point that's exactly what we're missing here now and i think in a lot of european countries as well cross countries and afterthought so the best runners are picking up an appearance fee at a major marathon or mm -hmm. they're trying to run under 13 minutes on the track and they're not prioritizing cross country and that to me because i i love cross country as well it's my it's my first love it was my entry point into running it's just it's really sad yeah the 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 track meets have made the track made track times faster but they've killed cross country so you know when you have when you have the Cardinal invite in Stanford on the same weekend as the, the U.S. National Cross Country Championships, you know, that's a problem. Or the, the, the National Indoor Championships on the same weekend as the, as the National Cross Country Championships. It's, people are, are very focused now on, on hitting a time because it gets them bonuses in their contract and it gets them qualifiers for the Olympic trials or the World Championships trials. 
and or the actual Olympic Games or World Championships. And that's just more important right now for an athlete's profile. But imagine if, if we raise the profile of cross country. I mean, I, I you, you'd see more athletes doing it if it was in the, their contract to make the U.S. cross-country team was a bonus or if they win the U.S. cross-country championships was a bonus, if there was better prize money, if there was prize money for teams, even if it was for trade teams. Like, cycling does a great job of this. Why can't you balance v Nike, v Adidas, v Brooks, v Hoka in a cross-country race representing your brand? You know, there's lots of things that we could do uh, but it just doesn't seem to be to be a priority for world athletics or for USATF or for European athletics right now. I think they're happy enough to have cross country be what it is, and uh, the NCAA is still one of the the best cross country races in the world. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I wish it were more of a priority because I I think that it would be one of the most effective ways to grow interest in the sport as you just described. I mean, there's no better pure racing than cross country back to what we were saying earlier about differences between you know lance armstrong winning the tour de france and elliot kipchoge running fast times in the marathon in cross country the times don't matter it's how many titles did you win who won the race because a real cross country race isn't even a, a set distance it's like hey let's run this loop four times and what that brings out is just the best competition that you could ever watch people are just racing each other and it's a chess match and it's strategic and i think that's the most attractive part of of athletics is the racing i mean sure i mean there's some intrigue watching a guy chasing the clock and seeing if he can get under two hours for a marathon distance but i would pay a lot more money to watch you know two women battling it down the home straight uh just having a great back and forth battle to see who comes out on top yeah i agree and, and that's just a personal thing i i love watching a great track race i love watching a great marathon but when when you when the clock doesn't matter when it no one says what time did you run look granted we've fallen into the into in the u.s especially in the college system because we run the same courses on the same conditions year in and year out. We have developed like, what time did you run at Van Corten Park? What time did you run at Franklin Park? And it is a good benchmark, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, at the old the old days of the World Cross Country Championships when it was, you know, Gabriel Selassie could always be Paul Turga on the track, but Paul Turga could always be Gabriel Selassie in cross country. And I loved watching that whole dance take place over the years. And then they both meet each other at the marathon and they go back and forth at the marathon. The cross country piece was it was uh, was always Paul Tergat and it was amazing to watch watch him win the World Cross Country every year and then the Kile comes along and all these runners the the East Africans still treat cross country with this utmost importance and uh, they emphasize it which is why they're really good at it and uh, I think if we in the rest of the world emphasized it in the same way you would see World Cross Country be back to like nation v nation good old-fashioned arse kicking and no one worried about shoes and technology and foams and times it'd be just get out there in the mud and, and race each other so love it last question for you before we wrap up this conversation as we discussed earlier your own athletic career was cut short due to injury what do you miss most about being a competitive athlete in running uh well, the thing I miss most about running is the the simplicity and the comfort and the 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 ease of of doing it. Um, cycling is 
is very involved. Uh, to go out for a ride is is just a mission to get out the door, making sure everything's right on the bike and making sure everything's right with nutrition and your so on and so forth and where you're going to go. I, I miss the convenience and the comfort of going for a run. Bang for the buck, I don't think there's anything better. I can go out for a run in an hour and accomplish a really, really good workout and, and be done. So I just miss the, I miss the comfort I used to get from going for a run by myself and the feeling I, I got from a day when I was feeling good and I could bounce along the road or bounce along the trail. And it just, it didn't feel like it was taking away from my day. It was just adding to my day. So I miss the convenience of it. And then I miss desperately racing. And I, I, I miss the fact that I've never had the opportunity to run a marathon even though I knew I could run a good marathon if I didn't get injured. So when I go to Boston or when I go to New York City or London, you know, events I go to for work and I watch them, I, I, I still get sad. It's, it's crazy that I'm this far removed and I still get like crazy, like moments of just sadness when I see everyone the night before, you know, chilling out in the lobby of the hotel and putting their feet up and drinking their bottle of water as I'm putting down a bunch of beers because I've probably done something that day or I'm entertaining guests. And I always get up in the morning at those events. And, you know, in New York, I ride my bike with the wheelchair racers. So I'm up super early and out at the start. And I see those runners going out there and I see the elite runners getting off the bus. And I'm like, I've never experienced that. And so I don't miss it because I have never experienced it, but I miss the fact that I've never experienced it, if that makes sense. And it's something that will never go away for me. So the comfort and convenience of going for a run, especially in a new city when I travel, waking up in the morning and just being able to go outside and run instead of having to go downstairs and get on a spin bike or an exercise bike. And then just racing and feeling that part of racing culture and camaraderie of when you're, when it's nice when you're a good runner and you can hang out with other good runners and you're ready to go and, and race each other and you know you're going to have a beer afterwards. That's a, that's a, that's something that I desperately miss. And I wish I could do it now as a master. I'd love to be racing on the master scene. I'd love to be trying to run two, sub 2.30 in a marathon right now as a 40 plus year old, but I'll never get to do that. And I think it's, it's something that I, I just have to, I have to deal with in my, in my own way. I appreciate you sharing that. I've really enjoyed this last two hours. Might be the longest podcast that I've ever recorded for the morning shakeout, knocking off our mutual friend, Mike Rouse, uh, ultra running extraordinaire. Sorry, Rousey. Um, but this has been great. There's a lot that we didn't even touch on. I feel like we could go another two hours easily. So I may have to bring you back, but Keith Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the morning shakeout. Thanks Mario. And thanks for doing this. You know, this is one of, there's a lot of podcasts out there. This is the most consistent, good quality running podcast there there is and uh i've enjoyed listening over the years and i I need to do a better job listening uh to all of the not just not just the people i like or know but listening to all of these podcasts you're doing a great job mate and uh, it's great to see your career grow i do remember from pr running getting your job at, at competitor group i was we were all in solace that night if you remember in uh the lennox hotel in boston when you were <laughs> interviewing and and uh it's just great to see what you've done and your contribution to the sport is huge. And, and now you're a, you're a figurehead in the sport and it's, it's really wonderful to see. So keep rocking, my man. Keep doing what you're doing.
right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Gooder and Girls on the Run for sponsoring this episode. Gooder makes the most affordable performance sunglasses on the planet with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. They come in a nice range of styles and colors and they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. If you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. 13% off your order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 13% off your first pair of shades. Look good, run gooder. Girls on the Run has been inspiring girls to know and activate their limitless potential and boldly pursue their dreams. On Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, just a few weeks from now, you are invited to join an exciting 25th birthday virtual event celebrating the inherent power and courage of girls. Join me and RSVP today at gotr.gives slash TMS. That's G-O-T-R dot gives slash TMS. The event is free to attend, but donations can be made and special add-on packages are available for purchase, such as a copy of Hoda Kotb's newest book and a pair of Gooder sunglasses customized for girls on the run. That's G-O-T-R dot gives slash TMS. You can find more information there and register for the event today. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>